Jeremiah. All right. Turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Nicole uh, texted me yesterday afternoon. She said, how's it going? And I said, I am in the deep end of the pool. <clears throat> and um, I had these ideas of grandiose that we would cover this particular letter in one sitting. And we're, we're going to be <clears throat> stuck in verse 7 this morning. Um, so much here, and I'm amazed at, at how... Scripture overlaps as the Spirit of God superintends what we study and what we learn. And amazed at, at how deep Scripture is, and yet how simple. And it's a paradox. As we begin our study of the letter of the Church of Philadelphia, there is a reminder here that we're ending nearing the end of our first cycle and our seven cycle um, outline. And I showed this to you almost a year ago. So I expect you all to remember this. <clears throat> it was in August of last year that we first looked at this, but this is an overall breakdown of how the book of revelation is broken up and it's in seven distinct cycles. And we're in cycle one, the seven suffering churches. And I just wanted to remind you of that we'll get back to that. A little bit later, but um, there are three points in our outline in this letter to Philadelphia. We'll, Lord willing, cover one this morning. And this is, by way of context, church number six on the circular mail route. And this church is one of two churches that have a distinction. You know what that is? They're one of two churches where the Lord Jesus does not rebuke the church. <clears throat> There's also another similarity that jumps out at you too, as you compare the church of Philadelphia. And by the way, I, I came prepared this morning. Um, as you compare the church of Philadelphia to the church of Smyrna, both churches have striking similarities. Smyrna was poor. Scripture says, but they were rich. But in terms of how the world measures wealth, the church in Smyrna was poor. They were meager means. Philadelphia, a small, weak, seemingly insignificant body. Maybe for us ministering in Wilkes County, North Carolina, an appropriate and encouraging parallel. But they were also greatly loved and they mattered to Christ. This is important. Both had common external opposition, that is, unbelieving Judaism. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Interestingly, Philadelphia parallels the same opposition that Smyrna had. So we'll look at that, um, touch on that a bit this morning, but we'll get to that a little bit later next week. Um, by way of context, there is uh, a, a picture on the next slide. Jesse, thank you. Um, they're about 20 miles south of that volcano. And we'll just call it Volcano Kula because that is a very tough name to pronounce. And I tried. I practiced. Kata Kekamaune. <laughs> See, I practiced. Kata Kekamaune. Yeah. So we'll call it Kula. But this was, this was, I think, a hint, by the way, and we'll get to that a little bit more later on, that, that the book of Revelation, as we talked about when we started out in the introduction, was most likely written around AD 95, looking back at um, what happened. But Philadelphia was a city heavily impacted by seismic activity. In AD 17, it was badly damaged. And 
Tiberius, the uh, the emperor of Rome at that time, remitted taxes for five years. Um, kind of like the week before school for five consecutive years so that they could rebuild the city. Like all politicians do, they erected a huge monument to Tiberius and renamed the city Neo Caesarea or Caesar's new city. And I think this is a bit of a clue as to some of the verbiage that we hear at the end of this letter. But this is a city that is agriculturally rich. There, were, there are speculations that because of the volcanic activity um, made for phenomenal um, vine growth for, for vineyards. In fact, um, one of the Roman emperors had them, them cut some of the vineyards down because of um, drought in other places that they might grow grain or corn. But this is a, a small church that is faithful to God. And hopefully it'll be an encouragement to us this morning as we look at this. In verse 7, point number 1, which is, as I said, as far as we're going to get this morning, there's an introduction from the Holy One. In verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. We see this command by Christ to John to write frequently, and it's repeated. In Revelation 1.11, it says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The command to write and send was a commission that Christ gave to John, an important one. And this was common um, in prophetic language as a forerunner or the war of a warning of judgment to come. Why was it important to write? We take for granted sometimes um, the blessing that it is to be able to read and to write to put thoughts and words down on paper that can be communicated down through time. And in verse 19 of chapter one, we find Jesus say, right. Therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. I was thinking about this. And again, there's this reminder repeated over and over to John to write and it, it prompted this question in my mind as I studied this. And, and it's this, at the last judgment, what are the witnesses that will stand against those who are guilty as they stand before God? Think about that for a second. What are the witnesses that will silence the mouths of the guilty when, when the guilty stand before God at the last judgment? Paul says in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So what? So that every mouth may be stopped or silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There are three witnesses <clears throat> that we see very clearly in scripture. And if this were a courtroom and you take your mind to that picture, standing before the tribunal, of a holy God and the prosecution lays out the case against the guilty. Exhibit number one, what is it? Romans 1, 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What? There will be no rebuttal against the, the divine righteous judge to say, I didn't know about you. Why? God has shown himself to them. Verse 20 of Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly what? Perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul says, concluding, so they are what? Exhibit number one. 
exhibit number two. Paul says in Romans 2, 14 through 16, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is what? Written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Exhibit number two for the prosecution is our conscience. Exhibit number three, God's written word. Isaiah 30, verse 8, and now. This is God speaking to Isaiah. Go write it before them on a tablet. This is not the kind of tablet we're thinking of when I say tablet. God tells Isaiah, go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come. What? As a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Scripture is witness number three. Now, we're living in a time when the authority of Scripture is under absolute attack in our culture. It's under absolute assault. And we would say, well, that's from the unbelieving. Even even the so-called church professing believers. I stumbled on this. This was a, a quote from a sermon from Andy Stanley, and I, I told the guys I had many, many years ago, as I, in my late teens, listened to his dad. Um, um, thank you. Thank you. I knew him well, obviously. <laughs> listened to uh, a, a series that Charles Stanley did on John chapter 8 that, as a teenager, had a huge, profound impact on my life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Andy Stanley, earlier this year in March, said this from the pulpit, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy or the inerrancy of 66 ancient documents or books we call the Bible. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that might sound... eh, How do we know of Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. How do we know? How do we know he was resurrected? We have the account of witnesses that are found where? In scripture. If this scripture is not trustworthy, if it's not reliable, then how do we know he resurrected? If we're going to set up the resurrection as a primary theological doctrine, and by the way, it is but we're going to do it at the expense and sacrifice the word of God in the process. How can we trust it? What we do is we set ourselves up as judge over God's word. He said this quote, I stopped using specific language. I quit saying the Bible says the Bible teaches the word of God says the word of God teaches. This was not a change in belief or theology for me. This is simply a change in approach to talking about the Bible. He said elsewhere, for the first 350 years of Christianity, no preacher or teacher said the Bible says. Think about that on its face. For the first 350 years of Christianity, no teacher or preacher said the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. There is no such thing or there was no such thing as the Bible. Obviously, there was scripture. But they did not, especially in the first century, build the Christian faith on the back of a text. Nobody could read. Nobody owned one. What drove the first century Christians was an event. Then I thought about the Bereans. What were the Bereans studying? In Acts 17.10, Scripture says this, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word 
with all eagerness, examining the scriptures. The, the word scriptures in the Greek is the word graphe. What are we doing when we graph? Writing. The written word of God. I'm going to share an excerpt from a, a message that Paul preaches with Barnabas in a synagogue in just a few minutes. And, and it starts out by saying they examined the law and the prophets. What is that? It's God's word, the scripture. The Bereans studied the writings, the sacred scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What? They studied the scripture to do what? To see if these things were so. In other words, the scripture validates any and all theological assumptions, doesn't it? It must. It is our authority. God's word derided, ridiculed, mocked, ignored, left on our culture's back shelf of the car to rot in the sun, diminished and twisted by false teachers will be the final witness that day at the last judgment. His written word will be the final witness for the prosecution. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as what? A testimony. The word testimony in the Greek is martyrion. What is that? A witness. Let me say this again. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a witness to all nations and what? And then the end will come. The gospel is being preached today to accomplish one of two things. Do you know what they are? God is calling his sheep with the preaching of the gospel. And we think, wait a minute, I just preached or I just shared the gospel with someone. They, they rejected it. I wasted my time. No. What is the other thing that is happening with the preaching of the gospel? He is stacking up the evidence. Think about that. God is stacking up the evidence. That should, that should be alarming to us because every Sunday that we sit, in this church, and we hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ preached. If we reject it, if we disobey the gospel, what are we doing? We're not just putting off till tomorrow what, what we could have done today. We're stacking up evidence against ourselves. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Void or empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the very first paragraph on the first page of Pilgrim's Progress, if you have not read it, you should put it on your, your list. John Bunyan writes this. He says, quote, as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept... I dreamed a dream. And behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. And I looked and I saw him open the book and read therein. And, it, and, it, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do? God's word is doing one of two things. It is either driving us to Christ, where we are just like Christian here, where we say, what can I do? Well, the answer is you can do nothing. Go to Christ. That's what scripture does. Or it is heaping up condemnation and judgment on our heads as we disobey the outward call of the gospel. But it will be that final witness that pronounces us guilty as we stand before him. But here again is the written word. And by the way, those 
that ridicule the word of God are ridiculing the keeping and the superintending of that word down through history. God did not breathe out his word by men that he filled with the Holy Spirit to, to write out his word to let it die in 2022 under the attack of unbelievers and false prophets. He hasn't done it. But what we're really saying is, Lord, you can't, you can't finish what you started. Our text continues, the words of the Holy One, the true one. I want to set the table for what's going on here. The essence of the claim of the synagogue of Satan is what? What is, think about the synagogue of Satan. Here, here are those who are making the claim that they are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And what are they saying? Well, they're making, they're making a couple claims. Jesus is not who he said he is, right? And, and, and this, this letter to the church in Philadelphia is going to be a, an absolute rebuttal against the synagogue of Satan. But the primary, the primary claim of the synagogue of Satan, those who are, are Jews but not really Jews, is what? What, are, what, are they, what is the fundamental underpinning of their doctrine? I can get to God how? By keeping the law. I can do it. Just like Paul did, right? Paul, you go down through the list of everything he did. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was above reproach, and he even killed the enemies of God. That's how devout he was. The claim of the synagogue of Satan is Jesus is not God, and Jesus is not the one. What is unbelieving Israel doing right now? What are they waiting for? They're, they're waiting for the Messiah. Still waiting. He isn't God and he isn't the true Messiah. Jesus is correcting that with this statement. He is the Holy One. In Isaiah 1.4, and this was the first text that I ever uh, preached on, and I wouldn't even call it preaching. When I was 15 years old, this is, this is a text that dad made me preach and it was a nine minute service I'll never forget it my brothers loved when I preached because it was over like that I preached on 10 verses 10 verses in nine minutes it was a record but in Isaiah 1 4 the indictment God brings against Israel he says ah sinful nation a people laden with iniquity offspring of evildoers children who deal corruptly they have forsaken the Lord they have despised too the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly destroyed. The statement, the Holy One of Israel, is specifically speaking about God. He is the Holy One of Israel, and Christ is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 60, 14, and this will tie to verse 9, which we will not get to today, but it says this, the sons of those who afflicted you, this is... This is a restatement in verse 9 of this chapter that we're in, Revelation 3, from Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call, listen to this, they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia that he is God. A very fundamental statement that the synagogue of Satan was repudiating. He is also the true one. But what does that mean? He is the true one. I want to share with you something that I found from Richard Phillips, who is a pastor, um, of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He authored The Masculine Mandate, um, an excellent book. And he says, here are the witnesses that John presents in the Gospel of John. I just want to share them with you. The weight of who Christ is, is overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. 
First, and he lists eight witnesses. Bear with me just a minute. First, there is a witness of God the Father. In John 8, 18, Jesus said, the Father who sent me, what? Bears witness about me. We have the Father. Jesus, God the Son, also bore witness to himself. He said in John 8, 14, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. The Father, the Son, the third witness of God or of Christ and who he is, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to send when he returned to heaven. When the helper comes, this is John 15, 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will bear witness about me. The Spirit of God will bear witness about Jesus, the true one. Number four, John 10, 25, Jesus pointed to his works as witness. The works that I do in my Father's name do what? Bear witness about me. This is an important emphasis in this gospel. John records marvelous works Jesus performed to demonstrate his deity. Number five, fifth, this is important as well. The witness of scripture. The most important purpose of the Old Testament was to give prophecies that would be fulfilled in Jesus, to teach God's will in a way that would be completed, fulfilled by Jesus and by various means to symbolize and anticipate Jesus' coming and the salvation he would bring. Jesus said this in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures. Wait a minute. The early church didn't have the scriptures. Jesus said in John 539, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Bible doesn't matter. Jesus contradicts that claim. Number six, one of the Old Testament prophecies concerned a forerunner to the Messiah whose ministry would, would resemble that of the prophet Elijah. This is John the Baptist, the sixth of John's witnesses. John's seventh witness is Jesus' disciples. There were firsthand witnesses, including John himself. Jesus told them, you also what? Will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, John 15, 27. The eighth witness is the men and women who personally encountered Jesus. One was a Samaritan woman who Jesus met by the well. After Jesus had revealed himself to her, she went throughout her town presenting her witness. Quote, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? John 4, 29. Another was the man who was born blind to whom Jesus miraculously gave sight. When the religious leaders tried to silence him, he gave this witness, quote, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. He had a witness with his eyes of who Jesus was. The weight of the true one is overwhelming. And Jesus told his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they have seen the Holy One, the true one. The scripture then says, who has the key of David. And that's where I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning because I couldn't get past this. We're studying in 2 Samuel, by the way, um, in our Bible study. And this passage is a restatement of Isaiah 22 in verse 20. It says this, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. That's Shebna's robe, who he is about to depose and put Eliakim in a place of authority in Israel. And he says, I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And she, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. 
he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The prophecy of Eliakim is looking forward to who? The person of Christ. So here's the question. What is the key of David? And why doesn't David have the key? What is the key of David here? And why doesn't David have the key? The fact that Christ has the key of David's kingdom tells us something very important about David. So what is this talking about? Well, I think and I believe as I study this is this is a restatement of what we studied in Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And every introduction that we have to the seven churches is a restatement from that description of who Christ is in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, we studied this. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. He or Christ has the keys over death and hell. What does that mean? Um, as time continues to go by, more and more of our children get the car keys. Much to our dismay and exuberance and excitement and stress level. Um, but part of growing up, taking on more responsibility and getting more authority is having the keys to the car. Um, it's an exciting thing. And we all remember the first time we were by ourselves. We didn't have mom or dad sitting next to us saying, slow down, turn fast. Or, you know, backseat driving. And, and there was that feeling of an immense, incredible freedom. Do you remember that wind blowing through your hair for those of us that have hair left and thinking about our freedom? Well, with that set of keys came authority, came responsibility. And what we looked at in Revelation chapter one was that Christ had the keys over death and hell. He has absolute authority. Luke 16, 23, by the way, referring to Hades and, and being in Hades, being in torment. This is um, Lazarus. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. And Lazarus at his side. This is one of the names, by the way, Hades of hell, where um, people go after they die. Inter interestingly enough, paradisos, the Greek word for paradise, we find as a, as a term for heaven. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus tells a thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradisos. Paul refers to heaven as paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. But this is another word, and there are several that, that speak of the same place, which is a place of eternal torment and punishment. God executing justice on the unbeliever. So where did David lose his key? Why? It, and this is intriguing to me. Why does it refer to the key of David? Well, who, what is the church's biggest struggle right now? What is the church's biggest struggle? What are they wrestling with? They're not being chided. They're not being rebuked. But the Lord says, you're dealing with the synagogue of Satan. And he says to them, and, and Jesus is so gracious here. He is equipping the church to respond to the adversary. I hold the key of David. And, and I'm thinking to myself, why doesn't David have the key? Why is Jesus holding the key of David? Where did David lose his key? 
So 2 Samuel 7, and we were there not too long ago. This is God speaking to David, and he says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established until you die. No, forever. 2 Samuel 23, 5, David fully understands the concept of a covenant because he says this, For does not my house stand so with God? Or has he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure? I want to take you to a sermon to explain this in Acts chapter 13. If you will turn there with me, I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes there. Because Paul and Barnabas explain this in the synagogue. Why, why David? Why does Jesus tell the church in Philadelphia? Yes, sir. Acts chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 12. Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. They're just going in to observe, okay? Verse 15. Now remember, the early church did not have scripture. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. You just asked Paul to preach. That's what you did. And their lives are about to be changed. Here's these new guys sitting probably on the front row and, and the, the leaders of the synagogue say, hey, new guy, you got anything to say? Oh, do we? Do we? May I have the floor for a moment? So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. They're nodding along as of right now, right? And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Mm. Mm. Hey, what? Okay, Paul, keep going. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him. Now, David's recounting history for these, for these Jews in the synagogue. He gave them Saul, the son of Gish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, he, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now here, by the way, here's where the dividing line is. They're all good with David. They're all good with Abraham. They're all good with the history of Israel. Paul. You're right on. But now you have made a claim that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Now this is where things get sketchy. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets. Ooh which are read every Sabbath, ooh, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul is telling them, God used you, wicked Israel, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. This is hurting right now as they're listening to this. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now, what? His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that, God, that what God promised to the fathers, this was fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it also is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. Listen to what he says next. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says so in another psalm. You will not let who? Your holy one. Did we just read about that? You will not let your holy one see corruption. Wait a minute, who is the Holy One? Who did they hold in such esteem? They were, they were looking for the Messiah, not convinced the unbelieving Jews were not convinced that Jesus was that Holy One. But look at what he says in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, what? Fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and what? Saw corruption. His body rotted. Well, how does this work? I will establish your kingdom, what? Forever. But there's David in a tomb. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see what they're saying here? Here is David, who you hold in high esteem. He is a man after God's own heart, the psalmist of Israel, the shepherd of Israel. And here is one that is greater. Here is the one who did everything that David couldn't do. We've been studying through the Second uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel. What do we read about? David's failings. Why does Scripture tell us about that? If he is to be elevated as the patriarch of Israel, why does Scripture tell us about his sin? And not just tell us about it. It's on the rooftop. Why? David can't keep the covenant. There is one coming after that will do what David couldn't do. And that is why the kingdom will be everlasting. David's in a tomb. He's bones. They finish up the message and they get swarmed by people in the synagogue and and Paul and Barnabas admonished them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Not the law of Moses, but the grace of God. Verse 45, but when the Jews, or verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were what? Filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Why were they reviling him? What was the message of Paul? Sustain yourself in the grace of God, not the law of Moses. Wait a minute. The synagogue of Satan loves the law of Moses. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? You, you, you go across the world to proselytize someone clear across the planet and you make them all the... You make them twice the child of hell that you are. Listen to what Paul and Barnabas say, and they say it boldly. 
This had to take guts, by the way. Quote, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. What were we talking about that the word of God does? It was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to who? Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Here's a picture of what is going on in the city of Philadelphia, the synagogue of Satan, if you will. The contrast is very clear. We have the, his, the history of Israel, and we have the reality of Christ. Christ came to fulfill everything about the Old Testament, and they missed him. So the synagogue of Satan here is establishing the fact that we will get to God on our own terms. We'll do it ourselves. But Paul made it clear. Jesus does with the kingdom what David could not do. The kingdom of David was a type and shadow of the kingdom of Christ, just as David was. God made a promise to to David, and the promise was fulfilled in Christ. Could David keep his kingdom? I give you Absalom. In Luke 1, 26 through 33, listen to how Gabriel introduces to Mary what is about to transpire. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. David couldn't save his kingdom. We find him running in the wilderness because his own son hijacks it from him. Could David obey the law that he delighted in? Psalm 119 is a love letter to the law of God. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about the blessedness of God's law. And and he fails miserably to keep it. Did Jesus keep it? Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was, was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. What did we hear about David this morning? When, when his servant came and, and repented and said, I, I messed up, will you spare my life? And David says, yeah, I'm not going to kill you. Then tell Solomon on his deathbed, hey, after I die, you know what to do. He was reviled and did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Was David a perfectly just king? He failed. Could David live without dying and seeing corruption? Well, we just read about that, didn't we? What is is Paul telling Israel? The one that you hold in such high esteem is not what you think. He is a man. He could not keep the terms of the covenant. David was a beneficiary, by the way, just like we are, of the covenant. Are you keeping your end of the covenant with God? Are you? How are you doing that? How's that working out for you? How does the covenant work for us? Just like Abraham, who God put to sleep. Why? David. Or Abraham, I'm going to do this while you lay there asleep because you can't keep this covenant. David couldn't keep the covenant either. It's a covenant of grace. God giving to to him what he did not deserve. David couldn't keep the terms of the covenant. But in Hebrews 9.15, the scripture says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, may receive the promised 
eternal inheritance. David did nothing to get his internal inheritance. Let me say that again. David did nothing. How did David get an eternal inheritance? Grace. Could David hang on to the keys of the kingdom? No. But who, who in Revelation chapter 3 has the keys to David's kingdom? David, you lost your keys. Why did David lose the keys? Because he never could hold them. He never could have kept them. The kingdom could not stay in his grasp. Jesus fulfilled every promise that God made to David. Jesus fulfilled. And he picks up the baton from David, who is in the tomb, bones and ashes and dust. And he carries the baton. He carries the key to the kingdom across the finish line. That's covenant grace. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We're almost to the finish line. Revelation 5. We'll get there probably in another year. In Revelation 5, we see an amazing picture here. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls? And break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of who? David has conquered so that he can open the scroll on its seven seals. The root of David. In Isaiah 11, let's figure out what the root of David is. Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of who? Jesse. That's right. Not that Jesse. The spirit and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Where is the root? Where's the branch coming from? A stump. What is a stump? Any sawyers in here? Any lumberjacks? What's a stump? It's a tree that's been cut down, right? So what is he saying? David's kingdom? Gone. You don't see it. It's a stump. God failed, right? He didn't keep his promise, right? Because out of the stump, comes a little sapling. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wait a minute. He's not describing David here, is he? David failed in all of this. And he says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What is he describing here? A king, a righteous king. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips Shall he shall kill the wicked? Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Everything that David failed in, Christ fulfills. Everything that he failed in, Christ fulfilled. Why? Because is is renowned and respected a patriarch as David was. He was a man. He was a sinner, and he needed a mediator. Just like you and I do. Lastly, our text says in verse one, who opens and no one will shut 
who shuts and no one opens. Now, if you go to the next verse, well, we won't get there this morning, but he says, behold, I put before you an open door. That's the picture. What is a key unlock? A door. This is a deep end of the swimming pool, but it's also simple at the same time, which is amazing. He says, I am the one who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one's op- no one opens. I want you to see this morning that Jesus is the door and he opens and closes it to whom he wills. Jesus is the door and he is sovereign over who comes in and who doesn't go in. Genesis chapter 7, and this was the text that um, I was converted under. My mom was reading this passage to me when I was just a wee lad of three or four years old. And I'll never forget that day. I can see it in my mind. The way the sun came through the windows, that old plaid couch that we were sitting on that reeked of 1970-something. And she lovingly sat me down and was teaching me from God's word. And we were in Genesis chapter seven, the account of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I think the thing that jarred me, verse 16, and those that entered, this is referring to the ark, male and female of all flesh went in, that is to the ark as God commanded him. How did the door shut? Well, it says Noah got a pulley and he used math to multiply his strength with fulcrums and pulley. No, no, God shut the door. Can you imagine when the rain started coming down after the people that Noah preached to for 200 plus years started seeing raindrops pelt their foreheads? Oh, boy. Can you imagine what they heard at that door as the water rose? Let us in. You, can you imagine the begging and the pleading after they realized their tragic, horrific mistake? God shut the door. Why? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is sovereign over the door of salvation. In John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven by accident. How do you get there? Must be born again to see and then to enter the kingdom of God. No one accidentally ends up as a Christian. Oh, no, we can call ourselves a Christian. We can learn the lingo. We can sit under preaching and sound doctrine and theology all of our lives and sound just like a Christian. But what we can't replicate is regeneration. Why? Because it is the work, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to give life to dead sinners. You can't do that yourself. It's not an accident. Who is the keeper of the kingdom of heaven? Who is the keeper of the door? Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. Who is he talking about? Holy Spirit sovereignly gives life so that you can see the door. Who is the door? Christ. In John chapter 6, no one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. One last text as we close. John chapter 10. Please turn there. I promise we're almost done. John chapter 10, and we know this, um, we've heard this parable, if you will, since we were we youngins. John chapter 10 is the passage regarding the great shepherd. Let's think about the context of this for a second. When Jesus is talking to Israel and he talks to them about the good shepherd, who do you think they think of? What was that? David. I hold the key, David, Revelation chapter 10, or John chapter 10, verse 1. Who did Israel know as the shepherd? David. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold, what? By the door, but climbs in by another way. 
That man is a thief and a robber. What is Jesus telling them? Well, let's think about John chapter 14, verse 6, as we pause there for a second. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but or except through me. Anybody that climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, now, let me ask you a question here. Jesus says it again. Was that because they didn't understand? What is Jesus doing here? He's stacking up the witness against them. They didn't understand. Now, some did. He that has ears to hear, let them hear. Why does Jesus repeat it? They didn't get it. Why did he speak in parables? Jesus said again to them, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Could he be any clearer? All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. David couldn't do this. David couldn't do this. When Jesus, the the reason Jesus was popular with with the nation of Israel at the time, remember when he came in during a triumphal entry? What were they looking for Jesus to do? They wanted to take care of Rome. Let's bring back this earthly kingdom thing. It was good. David, for all of his weaknesses, was not a bad king. They missed it. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have what? Authority. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He has the key of David. David couldn't do it. David's rotting in a tomb. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my father. As we close this morning, I want you to think about this. The door. Jesus is the door. And the door of heaven is too big to budge. There's no forcing our way in. Men have tried. Men have tried to scale the wall, if you will. And the the essence of the teaching of the synagogue of Satan is you can do it yourself. Just be good. That's what Paul tried to do. Just be good. If you're good, that's the essence of all religion, isn't it? Getting to God on my own terms. Jesus said, you must come through the door. There's no entrance. And he tells the church in Philadelphia, you're weak, but I have opened the door. Before you, are you trying to gain entrance into the kingdom on your own terms? That's the question before us this morning. The church of Satan says, we'll do it ourselves. They're of their father, the devil. He was kicked out of heaven for his pride. Alistair Begg, and if you haven't heard this message, um, you need to check it out. It's it's going to go down probably in church history as sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, in his message titled The Power and Message of the Cross, he talks about the thief on the cross. If you haven't heard it, it's worth listening to. But he, he speculates and conjectures on what transpires when the thief on the cross goes to the gates of heaven. And earlier that day, was what was he doing? He was cursing Christ, mocking him. And we find something transpired, something amazing 
and radical in the thief on the cross's life radically changed that day. He went from mocking Christ to Christ said, today you will be with me where? Paradise. And Alistair goes through this, and I love the Scottish voice as he's talking about this. He says, you know, the, the angel is befuddled at this. Never did this thief on the cross go to a Bible study, never baptized, um, never walked an aisle. How is it possible that the angel or that, that this, this wicked, vile man has gained entrance into the kingdom of God? And his famous words, the man on the middle cross said, I could come. Why? Because he has the authority. He opens and no man closes and he closes and no man opens. It had nothing to do with the thief's performance. And my reminder to you this morning is our performance has nothing to do with our entrance into the kingdom of God. Nothing. You can be good all your life by every measurable standard, except for God's righteous standard. If you're not trusting him, if you're not resting in him to give you entrance, and you're trying to do it your own way. And you may not see it, but it is pride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you have opened the door for your people. You have done the impossible. Told your disciples, Lord, that entering the kingdom of heaven was easier than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And your disciples asked you, how then is it possible for anyone to be saved? With God, all things are possible. And we stand here this morning as your children, cleansed, washed, forgiven. Because with you, all things are possible. Our salvation is the miracle work, the redeeming Savior, the Holy One, the True One. And Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. We praise you for who you are and what you have done in redeeming your people. We glorify you for that today. In your name we pray. Amen.